Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church and to our gathering this morning and to this series that we're in on Jesus' upside-down kingdom. A series in which we've been listening into a sort of king's speech that Jesus gave on what living in his kingdom looks like, and really on how different it looks from living in this world, which we've seen most recently in terms of what it looks like to live rightly before God. And to make the point, Jesus has been calling out the religious leaders of his day who had begun using even God's word to support not the inside-out sort of righteousness God was after, but rather the outside-only sort of righteousness they were good at. Using God's word, for instance, to, to justify anger rather than to drive it away, and to soften sexual struggles rather than to extinguish them, and to create escape clauses for marriage commitments rather than expectations for upholding them. This last matter, though, uh, of looking for ways to get out of one's commitments isn't just limited to marriage, though, is it? Which is why Jesus parks on this topic a bit in the verses that we're going to focus on today, found in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. And I know the bulletin says that we're going to consider character today, and in a way we are, but, but if you just want to cross that off, I think we can focus that a little bit even by looking more particular at this matter of commitment. And if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn again to Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus picks this up. And you can follow along with me as I read from verse 33 through to the end of verse 37. This is God's word. It says this. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the, his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a world where commitments don't seem to mean much anymore. Where character and integrity have fallen out of vogue and are no longer the norms in any sphere of life. And yet we look at you, God, as one set apart from all other deities, all other deities, man-made or otherwise, by the one great distinction that you are a God who always keeps his promises. His commitment to his people and to his son and to his own glory. 
never fails and never fluctuates. And so we ask as those who live under your undying commitment to your purposes that we too would reflect a measure of that in our own lives today. For the honor of your son Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Kids are pretty annoying, aren't they? Now, I don't mean my kids, <laughs> but other people's kids, your kids. And uh, the kids of those you know, or maybe even you when you were a kid. And if I just had to admit it, okay, all right, me, when I was a kid. Kids are just annoying. I mean, they, they pick their noses, they talk with their mouths full, they interrupt you all the time. They, they, they sneeze in your face and never say, excuse me. Kids are just annoying. But one of the most annoying things about kids has got to be their excessive use of finger-crossing. You know what I mean? The, the universal escape clause to any commitment whatsoever, no matter what legislative, judicial, or executive pressure is put upon them. So... He said, you'd trade your fluff sandwich for my liverwurst. I had my fingers crossed. You said, I, if I climbed a tree and licked the garbage can and told Kelly Heater that she had cooties, that you'd give me a quarter. I had my fingers crossed. Or the worst one I ever got. You said, you'd go with me to prom. <laughs> had my fingers crossed. That last one actually never happened to me. But kids, even older kids, are just plain annoying, especially when it comes to their excessive use of finger-crossing. But you know, it's not just kids who make finger-crossed commitments. It's us as well. Whether with our friends or families, with the jobs we work or the churches we attend, that with almost every commitment we make, we've secretly got written in there a universal escape clause to get out of it. One hand secretly held behind our back with our fingers crossed, just in case. You know what, though? This ain't new. In fact, it's been this way since the beginning of human history because making finger-crossed commitments is how men and women since the dawn of time have maintained control, stayed on top, and sought to remain dominant in their relationships. It's been this way since the beginning of human history, which is why in the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus takes the time to talk about it and specifically to address it by, by taking on the finger-crossed commitments of his own day, describing first what they looked like, second, what was wrong with them, and third, what to do to get those commitments uncrossed. 
And that's what we're going to look at today. What they looked like in Jesus' day. Second, what was wrong with them. And then third, what to do to get commitments like that uncrossed. Well, first, what these finger-crossed commitments looked like in Jesus' day which is wrapped up with what Jesus says in verse 33, when he says again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. By which Jesus is pointing out, just like he's done elsewhere in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, pointing out a particular part of God's word that the religious leaders of his day were using not as a way to to live rightly before God, but as a means for getting out from under God. This time, with regard to the keeping of their commitments. Just like when they took God's command not to murder, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and used it to justify everything short of murder. Or with sex and sexuality, when they took God's command not to commit adultery and used it to justify everything short of sleeping with someone. Well, so Jesus is saying here, they're taking this injunction to not swear falsely or to perform to the Lord what they had sworn and somehow using it to undo the very thing it was meant to uphold. This saying that's not really this time a direct quote from the Old Testament, as much as it is a summary of what what is said in, in a few different places. Like Leviticus, when God said, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. God's people were to not swear falsely in the sense of promising under oath to do something they then failed to do or maybe worse swear to do something that they didn't actually intend to do or in another context like a like a in a court of law to swear to some statement's truthfulness knowing it wasn't really true In what ways, though, would the religious leaders of Jesus' day have used something like this to undo what it was meant to uphold? To promote their outside-only sort of righteousness. To to sort of cross their fingers in, in the commitment similar to what they had done with the commands not to murder or commit adultery. Well, it seems the loophole they exploited in this instance was that little phrase, to the Lord. You see it there? You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So that anything sworn to the Lord was binding, but but anything sworn to something less was in some sense sworn with one's fingers crossed. So that a whole slew of these oaths that, that were supposed to promote truth and uphold trust and to underscore one's trustworthiness, all of a sudden were emptied of their significance similar to how Clinton exercised his freedom to redefine his relationship with Monica Lewinsky, if you can remember that far back, because he wasn't speaking at that moment from behind the witness stand, acting like the formality of the courtroom allowed for more, shall we say, creative margin when outside of it. Well, so too, 
in Jesus' day. This one, this oath, this was to the Lord, but that one wasn't. The loophole was quite a bit bigger, though, than even that. Because back in Jesus' day, you never really would have sworn to the Lord at all. Because technically, you never spoke of the Lord. That was their reading of another commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Which, for fear of taking it in vain, meant that they just stopped taking it altogether and wouldn't even mention God's name, let alone swear by it, and instead would fill in the blank with some sort of euphemism. So you wouldn't cry out to God, you would cry out to heaven. Heaven help me! Well, who's heaven? Heaven's not a person. It can't help you. Well, I meant you know who, who's sitting up there. Or maybe it was with making one of these oaths. I call heaven as my witness, and if I fail to do what I promise to do, may heaven strike me down. Well, similarly, heaven's not going to take the witness stand for you and hopefully not strike you down. Well, no, that's not what I meant either. But who's to say with all the euphemisms? Who's to say what's been sworn to the Lord and what's been sworn to something less? Well, the religious leaders, of course. Who better to make those distinctions? And that's precisely what they did. They spilled a whole lot of ink and came up with a whole lot of rules and regulations governing which oaths were and were not binding. So that, for instance, one rabbi said, if you swore an oath by Jerusalem, you were not bound to it. But if you swore an oath toward Jerusalem, you were. And they wrote a whole tractate in the Jewish Talmud spelling out all of the intricacies of oath-making, so that again, what was meant to foster truth and trustworthiness all of a sudden became a tool for deceit and deception and dishonesty. Another way of getting out from under God rather than for learning to live rightly before him. And who knew how to work the rules best? The ones who wrote them, once again, rigging the game to their own advantage, making up the game, once again, like an annoying bunch of kids. And they did, for the outward sort of righteousness they were after. That's what these finger-crossed commitments looked like in Jesus' day. Second, though, what was wrong with them? I mean, besides the fact that they were totally self-serving, what was wrong with these finger-crossed commitments? Well, according to Jesus, it's that all oaths and all the commitments under them are sworn to the Lord whether you mention his name or not. And really, whether you take an oath or not, it's all under God. So Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, verse 34, do not take an oath at all either, whether by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, i.e. him. 
and do not take an oath even by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But guess who can? And guess who does? And guess under whom you sit? See, it was just silly trying to figure out which oaths were binding and which ones weren't. Because not only did it undo the very thing these oaths were meant to uphold, it failed to recognize the one under whom they were made. And the one to whom all oath makers and all oath breakers are held responsible. So that the point really isn't the preposition by Jerusalem or toward Jerusalem about, above, across, after, against, amid, among, around, atop Jerusalem. That's just the A's. It's not about the preposition, but about the person who sat enthroned over Jerusalem. The one for whom heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. And the one to whom even the color of the hairs on your head owe their allegiance. So all oaths and all the commitments under them are sworn to the Lord whether you mention his name or not. And how much more ought it be for those living as citizens of his kingdom? Which is why when the Apostle Paul calls for a witness, he doesn't really bother with the euphemisms. He just cuts right to the chase. He says in Romans chapter 1, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Not heaven. The one sitting there. God is my witness. Or again, he tells the Philippians, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Or to the Thessalonians, he says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. The Apostle Paul demonstrates with regard to the truthfulness of what he says about the past, that these things happened. What the Apostle James demonstrates for talking about the future. You know the passage? James is a, a fascinating character, really, if for no other reason than he's the little brother of Jesus. And his book is intriguing for how many echoes it contains of his brother's teaching. And this passage from the Sermon on the Mount is among the loudest of those echoes. But before affirming Jesus' words here, James says this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. So Paul calls God is a, a witness to the past, and, and James entrusts to God the entirety of the future. And to live in the kingdom is to simultaneously be able to affirm God willed 
and God willing. What was wrong with the finger-crossed oaths of Jesus' day, though, was that they functionally removed God from the picture. Lastly, though, what do you do to uncross them? Whether commitments or even oaths. Well, we can start with Paul and James and suggest that one of the ways to uncross our commitments is to introduce God back into the equation. Or better, to to set up the equation around God. To recognize that all commitments are made under God. So if you're getting married, you recognize that the vows you make and the oaths you take are not just to the justice of the peace that signed your marriage license or to the pastor who performed the ceremony or even to the one who walked down the aisle with you. The one who's getting wrinkly, more wrinkly, every day. That's not the one to whom you ultimately make the vows, but that those vows are ultimately made to the Lord and are to be performed to the Lord. From which, if you follow the logic of verses 31 and 32, you are only released upon the death of your partner or their sexual unfaithfulness to you. As unto God. Or if you're a doctor recognizing that the Hippocratic Oath that you've sworn or some version of that to serve the sick and diseased is not just sworn to the sick and the diseased, but to the Lord who cares for them. So that if your Hippocratic oath turns into a hypocritical oath, it's him that you're going to have to answer to. Or recognizing even the commitment that we've asked the, the members of this church to affirm to one another, recognizing that even that is made under God and is an extension we are believe of the covenant God made with us in Christ. It's our side of this and why we celebrate communion in this local body, not just on our own, Jesus and me, off in some closet, but as a body, communing together around the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, even as we commune with the Lord. Those commitments we make to God and under God. Which is certainly allowed in the grammar of this passage. For when Jesus says, do not take an oath at all, he defines that as oaths taken by heaven, or by earth, or by Jerusalem, or by one's own head. Don't at all take these sorts of oaths, or make these sorts of commitments, oaths and commitments made in this way. Specifically because each of these is presented as having removed God from the equation. When in fact all such oaths and all such commitments have God at the very center of the equation. Reigning over the equation. So rather than saying do not take an oath at all period. Jesus' point is that all oaths are functionally to be performed to the Lord. Which again in part is what it means to uncross our commitments. 
We can go further than this, though, even. We can also affirm what with Jesus. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Why? Because anything more than this comes from evil. After all, who's the first one to, to raise the, the oath except the one who has already broken it, right? Let your words simply be yes or no, which at the very least means not making commitments we don't intend to keep or have no way of keeping, or by adding additional weight to our commitments by, say, making them into vows or, or, or taking oaths when there is no call for that. Which is why in marriage, say, you don't make a vow to be sinless because you can't fulfill that. Rather, you make a vow to love and to hold and to, in sickness and in health through good times and bad, through yours and theirs. That's why in the, again, the Hippocratic Oath or whatever other professional vow you take, it's not the, to perform the miraculous, but to serve what? To the best of one's ability and judgment. Or why in our commitment to one another here at KBC on our side of this covenant with God, in our reflection of God's covenant with us, we commit ourselves to what? To reflect in our attitudes and actions the life we found in Christ. And by God's grace, and according to the power of God's spirit, to submit ourselves to God's word, to devote ourselves to its study and to prayer, to, to follow Jesus' commands and to walk in wisdom and holiness as an act of worship to Jesus, to participate in the life of our body and to faithfully steward the gifts God's given us and to submit to one another in everything. Why? Because the commitments of our marriages and ministries, our callings and community, because these are what tie us to the king? No. Because our tie to the king drives us to the commitments. In 2002, 200 years after his birth, the remains of the French novelist Alexander Dumas were exhumed and relocated from their humble resting place in the north of France to the mausoleum in the Pantheon of Paris. There to join the likes of fellow authors, uh, Victor Hugo and Emile Zola in what the French Republic had christened the Temple of Great Men. Carried in a coffin by six Republican guards and escorted by another four mounted on horseback and arrayed as the musketeers about whom he wrote. Dumas' remains were laid to rest with a blue velvet cloth draped over its coffin's sides and this famous saying stitched into the fabric. Un pour toi, toi. If you brushed up on your French, one for all and all for one. The commitment that united the king's musketeers and under which Athos and Porthos and Aramis fought alongside D'Artagnan for the honor of the king. 
a commitment so strong that it needed, in Dumas' novel, no oath, no other pledge or promise besides, no other guarantee of its trust or trustworthiness, but stood simply on the worth of the king and on the worthiness ascribed to him by those who served him. One for all and all for one. Not unlike the commitment we have to Christ. That we have in Christ. A commitment that likewise needs no other oath, no pledge or promise, no other guarantee of its truth or trustworthiness besides. But stands simply on the worth of our king and on the worthiness we ascribe to him. So how are you doing? when it comes to your commitments in life or to those vows that you've made to others, whether to our king and his kingdom or to living as citizens of that kingdom as a, as a child or a spouse or a parent, as a brother or sister in Christ or as an ambassador of that kingdom here on earth. How are you doing? Are you keeping your commitments with character as unto the Lord? Or struggling to even pick up the pieces? Let me encourage you in your pursuit of that, that Jesus is worth the struggle. But also that the commitment we have to Christ, our own one for all and all for one, does not begin, did not begin with us, but with him. Because the one for all was Jesus himself, who uncrossed not only his fingers, but his arms and his whole self on our behalf, so that now we all can live for him. Heavenly Father, I, I ask that we would know this week a measure of the integrity that your Son displayed on our behalf. A measure of his commitment to us, that we would know it in our commitment to you, our commitment to those you've given us to love in life most, our commitment even to each other as a body. I pray that we would know it, the integrity that he shone forth on the cross and the character with which he held that commitment for us. I pray that it would shine through us for the glory of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.